0: Book number five, chapter two of The Rise of David Levinsky. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rise of David Levinsky by Abraham Cahan. Book number five. I Discover America. Chapter two. Ten minutes' walk brought me to the heart of the Jewish East Side. The streets swarmed with Yiddish speaking immigrants the signboards were in English and Yiddish, some of them in Russian. The scurry and hustle of the people were not merely overwhelmingly greater, both in volume and intensity, than in my native town. It was of another sort. The swing and step of the pedestrians, the voices and manner of the street-peddlers, and a hundred and one other things seemed to testify to far more self-confidence and energy, to larger ambitions and wider scopes, than did the appearance of the crowds in my birthplace. The great thing was that these people were better dressed than the inhabitants of my town. The poorest-looking man wore a hat, instead of a cap, a stiff collar and a necktie, and the poorest woman wore a hat or a bonnet. The appearance of a newly-arrived immigrant was still a novel spectacle on the east side. Many of the passers-by paused to look at me with wistful smiles of curiosity. "'There goes a green one,' some of them exclaimed. The sight of me obviously evoked reminiscences in them of the days when they had been green ones like myself. It was a second birth that they were witnessing, an experience which they had once gone through themselves and which was one of the greatest events of their lives. Green one or greenhorn is one of the many English words and phrases which my mother tongue has appropriated in England and America. Thanks to the many millions of letters that pass annually between the Jews of Russia and their relatives in the United States, a number of these words have by now come to be generally known among our people at home as well as here. In the eighties, however, one who had not visited any English speaking country was utterly unfamiliar with them, and so I never heard of green one before. Still, green in the sense of color is Yiddish as well as English, so I understood the phrase at once and as a contemptuous, Quizzical appellation for a newly arrived, inexperienced immigrant, it stung me cruelly. As I went along, I heard it again and again. Some of the passers-by would call me a greenhorn in a tone of blighting gaiety, but these were the exception. For the most part, it was a green one and in a spirit of sympathetic interest. It hurt me all the same. Even those glances that offered me a cordial welcome and good wishes had something self-complacent and condescending in them. Poor fellow, he is a green one these people seemed to say. We are not, of course. We are Americanized. For my first meal in the New World, I bought a three-cent wedge of coarse rye bread, off a huge round loaf, on a stand on Essex Street. I was too strict in my religious observances to eat it without first performing ablutions and offering a brief prayer, so I approached a bewigged old woman who stood in the doorway of a small grocery store to let me wash my hands and eat my meal in her place. She looked old-fashioned enough, yet when she heard my request, she said, with a laugh, "'You're a green one, I see.' "'Suppose I am,' I resented. "'Do the yellow ones or the black ones all eat without washing? Can't a fellow be a good Jew in America?' "'Yes, of course he can, but—well, wait till you see for yourself.' However, she asked me to come in, gave me some water and an old apron to serve me for a towel— and when I was ready to eat my bread she placed a glass of milk before me, explaining that she was not going to charge me for it. In America people are not foolish enough to be content with dry bread, she said sententiously. While I ate she questioned me about my antecedents. I remember how she impressed me as a strong, clever woman a few words as long as she catechized me, and how disappointed I was when she began to talk of herself. The astute, knowing mean gradually faded out of her face and I had before me a gushing, boastful old boar. My intention was to take a long stroll, as much in the hope of coming upon some windfall as for the purpose of taking a look at the great American city. Many of the letters that had come from the United States to my birthplace before I sailed had contained a warning not to imagine that America was a land of gold, and that treasure might be had in the streets of New York for the picking. But these warnings only had the effect of lending vividness to my image of an American street, as a thoroughfare strewn with nuggets of the precious metal symbolically speaking this was the idea one had of the land of columbus it was a continuation of the widespread effect produced by stories of cortez and pizarro in the 16th century confirmed by the successes of some russian emigrants of my time i asked the grocery woman to let me leave my bundle with her and after considerable hesitation she allowed me to put it among some empty barrels in her cellar i went wandering over the ghetto instead of stumbling upon nuggets of gold i found signs of poverty in one place i came across a poor family who as i learned upon inquiry had been dispossessed for non payment of rent a mother and her two little boys were watching their pile of furniture and other household goods on the sidewalk while the passers-by were dropping coins into a saucer placed on one of the chairs to enable the family to move into new quarters what puzzled me was the nature of the furniture for my birthplace, chairs and a couch like those I now saw on the sidewalk would be a sign of prosperity. But then anything was to be expected of a country where the poorest devil wore a hat and a starched collar. I walked on. The exclamation, a green one or a greenhorn, continued. If I did not hear it, I saw it in the eyes of the people who passed me. When it grew dark and I was much in need of rest, I had a street peddler direct me to a synagogue. I expected to spend the night there. What could have been more natural? At the house of God I found a handful of men in prayer. It was a large, spacious room, and the smallness of their number gave it an air of desolation. I joined in the devotions with great fervor. My soul was sobbing to heaven to take care of me in the strange country. The service over, several of the worshippers took up some Talmud folio or other holy book and proceeded to read them aloud in the familiar sing-song. The strange surroundings suddenly began to look like home to me. One of the readers, an elderly man with a pinched face and forked little beard, paused to look me over. A green one, he asked genially. He told me that the synagogue was crowded on Saturdays, while on weekdays people in America had no time to say their prayers at home, much less to visit a house of worship. It isn't Russia, he said with a sigh. Judaism has not much of a chance here. When he heard that I intended to stay at the synagogue overnight, he smiled ruefully. One does not sleep in an American synagogue, he said it is not Russia. Then scanning me once more, he added, with an air of compassionate perplexity, where will you sleep, poor child? I wish I could take you to my house, but, well, America is not Russia. There is no pity here, no hospitality. My wife would raise a rumpus if I brought you along. I should never hear the last of it. With a deep sigh and nodding his head plaintively, he returned to his book, swaying back and forth, but he was apparently more interested in the subject he had broached. When we were at home, he resumed, she, too, was a different woman. She did not make life a burden to me as she does here. Have you no money at all? I showed him the quarter I had received from the cloak contractor. Poor fellow, is that all you have? There are places where you can get a night's lodging for fifteen cents, but what are you going to do afterward? I am simply ashamed of myself. Hospitality, he quoted from the Talmud, is one of the things which the giver enjoys in this world, and the fruit of which he relishes in the world to come." to think that i cannot offer a talmudic scholar a night's rest alas america has turned me into a mound of ashes you were well off in russia weren't you i inquired in astonishment for indeed i had never heard of anything but poor people emigrating to america i used to spend my time reading talmud at the synagogue was his reply many of his answers seemed to fit not the question asked but one which was expected to follow it you might have thought him anxious to forestall your next query in order to save time and words had it not been so difficult for him to keep his mouth shut. She, he said, referring to his wife, had a nice little business. She sold feed for horses, and she rejoiced in the thought that she was married to a man of learning. True, she has a tongue. That she always had, but over there it was not so bad. She has become a different woman here. Alas, America is a topsy-turvy country.' he went on to show how the new world turned things upside down transforming an immigrant shoemaker into a man of substance while a former man of leisure was forced to work in a factory here in like manner his wife had changed for the worse for lo and behold instead of supporting him while he read talmud as she used to do at home she persisted in sending him out to peddle america is not russia she said a man must make a living here but alas it was too late to begin now he had spent the better part of his life at his holy books and was fit for nothing else now his wife however would take no excuses he must peddle or be nagged to death and if he ventured to slip into some synagogue of an afternoon and read a page or two he would be in danger of being caught red-handed so to say for indeed she often shadowed him to make sure that he did not play truant alas america was not russia a thought crossed my mind that if Reb Sender were here, he, too, might have to go peddling. Poor Reb Sender! The very image of him with a basket on his arm broke my heart. America did seem to be the most cruel place on earth. "'I'm telling you all this that you may see why I can't invite you to my house,' explained the peddler. All I did see was that the poor man could not help unburdening his mind to the first listener that presented himself. He pursued his tale of woe he went on complaining of his own fate, quite forgetful of mine. Instead of continuing to listen, I fell to gazing around the synagogue more or less furtively. One of the readers attracted my special attention. He was a venerable-looking man with a face which, as I now recall it, reminded me of Thackeray. Only he had a finer head than the English novelist. At last the hen-picked man discovered my inattention and fell silent. A minute later his tongue was at work again. "'You are looking at that man over there, aren't you?' he asked." who is he when the lord of the world gives one good luck he gives one good looks as well why is he rich his son-in-law is but then his daughter cherishes him as she does the apple of her eye and well when the lord of the world wishes to give a man happiness he gives him good children don't you know he rattled on betraying his envy of the venerable-looking man in various ways and telling me all he knew about him that he was a widower named even that he had been some years in america that his daughter furnished him all the money he needed and a good deal more, so that he lived like a monarch. Even would not live in his daughter's house, however, because her kitchen was not conducted according to the laws of Moses, and everything else in it was too modern. So he roomed and boarded with pious strangers, visiting her far less frequently than she visited him, and never eating at her table. "'He is a very proud man,' my informant said. "'One must not approach him otherwise than on tiptoe.' I threw a glance at Even— his dignified sing-song seemed to confirm my interlocutor's characterization of him. "'Perhaps you will ask me how his son-in-law takes it all,' the voluble Talmudist went on. "'Well, his daughter is a beautiful woman, and well-favored. The implication was that her husband was extremely fond of her, and let her use his money freely. They are awfully rich, and they live like veritable Gentiles, which is a common disease among the Jews of America. But then she observes the commandment, Honor thy father. That she does.' Again he tried to read his book, and again the temptation to gossip was too much for him. He returned to Even's pride, dwelling with considerable venom upon his love of approbation and vanity. May the uppermost not punish me for my evil words, but to see him take his roll of bills out of his pocket, and pay his contribution to the synagogue one would think he was some big merchant and not a poor devil sponging on his son-in-law." A few minutes later he told me admiringly how even often loaned him a half a dollar to enable him to do some reading for the house of God. I tell my virago of a wife I have sold fifty cents worth of goods, he explained to me sadly. After a while the man with the Thackeray face closed his book, kissed it, and rose to go. On his way out he unceremoniously paused in front of me, a silver snuff-box in his left hand, and fell to scrutinizing me. He had the appearance of a well-paid rabbi of a large prosperous town. He is going to say a green one, I prophesied to myself, all but shuddering at the prospect. And, sure enough, he did, but he took his time about it, which made the next minute seem a year to me. He took snuff with tantalizing deliberation. Next he sneezed with great zest, and then he resumed sizing me up. The suspense was insupportable. Another second, and I might have burst out— for mercy's sake, say, A green one, and let us be done with it. But at that moment he uttered it of his own accord. A green one, I see. Wherefrom? And grasping my hand, he added in Hebrew, Peace be to ye. His first questions about me were obsequiously answered by the man with a forked beard, whereupon my attention was attracted by the fact that he addressed him by his Gentile name, that is, as Mr. Even, and not by his Hebrew name, as he would have done in our birthplace. Surely America did not seem to be much of a God-fearing country. When Mr. Even heard of my Talmud studies, he questioned me about the tractates I had recently read, and even challenged me to explain an apparent discrepancy in a certain passage, for the double purpose of testing my Talmud brains and flaunting his own. I acquitted myself creditably, it seems, and I felt that I was making a good impression personally as well. Anyhow, he invited me to supper in a restaurant on our way there i told him of my mother's violent death vaguely hoping that it would add to his interest in me it did even more than i had expected to my pleasant surprise he proved to be familiar with the incident it appeared that because our section lay far outside the region of pogroms or anti-jewish riots the killing of my mother by a gentile mob had attracted considerable attention i was thrilled to find myself in the limelight of world-wide publicity i almost felt like a hero so you are her son he said pausing to look me over as though i had suddenly become a new man my poor orphan boy he caused me to recount the incident in every detail in doing so i made it as appallingly vivid as i knew how he was so absorbed and moved that he repeatedly made me stop in the middle of the sidewalk so as to look me in the face as he listened oh but you must be hungry he suddenly interrupted me come on arrived at the restaurant he ordered supper for me then he withdrew commending me to the care of the proprietress until he should return he had no sooner shut the door behind him than she took to questioning me was i a relative of mr even if not then why was he taking so much interest in me she was a vivacious well-fed young matron with cheeks of a flaming red and with the consciousness of business success all but spurting from her black eyes from what she assisted by one of the other customers present told me about my benefactor I learned that his son-in-law was the owner of the tenement house in which the restaurant was located, as well as of several other buildings. They also told me of the landlord's wife, of her devotion to her father, and of the latter's piety and dignity. It appeared, however, that in her filial reverence she would draw the line upon his desire not to spare the rod upon her children, which was really the chief reason why he was a stranger at her house." I had been waiting about two hours and was growing uneasy when Mr. Even came back, explaining that he had spent the time taking his own supper and finding lodgings for me. He then took me to store after store, buying me a suit of clothes, a hat, some underclothes, handkerchiefs, the first white handkerchiefs I ever possessed, collars, shoes, and a necktie. He spent a considerable sum on me. As we passed from block to block he kept saying, "'Now you won't look green,' or, "'That will make you look American.' At one point he added, Not that you are a bad-looking fellow as it is, but then one must be presentable in America. At this he quoted from the Talmud an equivalent to the saying that one must do in Rome as the Romans do. When all our purchases had been made, he took me to a barber-shop with bathrooms in the rear. Give him a haircut and a bath, he said to the proprietor. Cut off his side-locks while you are at it. One may go without them, and yet be a good Jew." He disappeared again, but when I emerged from the bathroom, I found him waiting for me. I stood before him, necktie and collar in hand, not knowing what to do with them, till he showed me how to put them on. Don't worry, David, he consoled me. When I came here, I, too, had to learn these things. When he was through with the job, he took me in front of a looking-glass. Quite an American, isn't he? he said to the barber, beamingly. And a good-looking fellow, too. When I took a look at the mirror, I was bewildered. I scarcely recognized myself. I was mentally parading my modern make-up before Matilda. A pang of yearning clutched my heart. It was a momentary feeling. For the rest, I was all in a flutter with embarrassment and a novel relish of existence. It was as though the haircut and the American clothes had changed my identity. The steamer, Getelson, and the man who had snatched him up now appeared to be something of the remote past. The day had been so overcrowded with novel impressions that it seemed an age. He took me to an apartment in a poor tenement house and introduced me to a tall, bewhiskered, morose-looking elderly man and a smiling woman of thirty-five, explaining that he had paid them in advance for a month's board and lodging. When he said, This is Mr. Levinsky, I felt as though I was being promoted in rank as behooved my new appearance. Mr. struck me as something like a title of nobility. It thrilled me. But somehow it seemed ridiculous, too. Indeed, it was some time before I could think of myself as a mister without being tempted to laugh. And here's some cash for you, he said, handing me a five-dollar bill and some silver in addition. And now you must shift for yourself. That's all I can do for you. Nor indeed would I do more if I could. A young man like you must learn to stand on his own legs. Understand? If you do well, come to see me. Understand? There was an eloquent pause which said that if I did not do well, I was not to molest him. Then he added aloud, There is only one thing I want you to promise me. Don't neglect your religion nor your Talmud. Do you promise that, David? I did. There was a note of fatherly tenderness in the way this utter stranger called me David. It reminded me of Reb Sender. I wanted to say something to express my gratitude, but I felt a lump in my throat. He advised me to invest the five dollars in dry goods and take up peddling. Then, wishing me luck, he left. My landlady, who had listened to Mr. Evans's parting words with pious nods and rapturous grins, remarked that one would vainly search the world for another man like him, and proceeded to make my bed on a lounge. The room was a kitchen. The stove was a puzzle to me. I wondered whether it was really a stove. Is this used for heating? I inquired. Yes, for heating and cooking, she explained, with smiling cordiality, and she added with infinite superiority, America has no use for those big tile ovens. When I found myself alone in the room, the feeling of desolation and uncertainty which had tormented me all day seized me once again. I went to bed and began to say my bed prayer. I did so mechanically. My mind did not attend to the words I was murmuring. Instead, it was saying to God, Lord of the universe, you have been good to me so far. I went out of that grocery store in the hope of coming upon some good piece of luck, and my hope was realized. Be good to me in the future as well. I shall be more pious than ever, I promise you, even if America is a godless country. I was excruciatingly homesick. My heart went out to my poor dead mother. Then I reflected that it was my story of her death that had led even to spend so much money on me. It seemed as if she were taking care of me from her grave. It seemed, too, as though she died so that I might arouse sympathy and make a good start in America. I thought of her, and all of Antomir, and my pangs of yearning for her were tinged with my pangs of unrequited love for Matilda. End of chapter 2